0: Hello, and welcome to the TSDCA podcast, where we bring you interviews, conversations, and explorations of the world of theatrical sound design. Today on the show, we have sound designer and DJ, Misha Fixel. We hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. So, welcome to the podcast. First thing, can you just introduce yourself?
1: My name is Mikhail Fixel. Most often I go by Misha, which is just a standard short name of Mikhail in Russian. I am a sound designer, composer, DJ based in Chicago and New York.
0: So you just named like six things that you do that all fall under the sort of broader heading of sound. How did you start working in sound? What was the first thing you did and how did it branch out?
1: So for me, the sound design journey was informed by all those different disciplines I named. It started with a music education back in the mother country. I guess I should include this in my bio. I grew up in Russia in a very fun place literally called Academic Town. I lived there until I was 12. It is there that I started studying music, classical piano. I started at five. So by the time we moved, when I was 12 years old, I had seven years of pretty intense Russian music education. I think I had classes four or five times a week. So it was a very strong foundation. And then when we moved, obviously that got cut short and I didn't have an instrument when we moved to the States. My family definitely couldn't afford lessons. So that kind of went away, but clearly left enough of an impression that I continued my interest in it. And then when I picked up like electric bass, started playing in the band, I was in a punk band and a ska band. And then when I was 16, I was living in Minnesota. I almost accidentally went to my first rave and was really taken by that sound somehow. And soon after that, I started DJing And then I moved to Chicago for university. I went to uh, University of Chicago. And at that point, I started DJing. And that's when sort of the sound journey really began. It went from music to sound. I think part of it is DJing introduced an element of technology. So I started kind of learning a little bit about it. Very much self-taught. There wasn't any formal component to it. And then I got into like electronic keyboards. And that's when software began to emerge. So I remember having like a cracked version of Reason. That I was messing around with. And that's when I also really understood that there's this whole world of theater. You know, everybody starts on the acting side. So I auditioned and was in a couple shows. And I think that's where kind of the streams kind of crossed. And I think I was playing keyboard in a band that was sort of the pit band for an outdoor production of Love's Labor's Lost, I believe. This was in 97. And somebody asked me to sound design a sketch comedy show. University of Chicago had a long-running sketch comedy troupe called Off Off Campus. I was asked to kind of sound design. And usually it was a by just improvised piano. At that point, I felt very insecure about improvising on piano. So in retrospect, I was just simply overcompensating for it. And I started employing all the sort of sound techniques I could think of. So I started bringing in toys, turntables, laptops, a keyboard that made cat noises, sort of sound effect toys. And so as that process kept growing, so was my sort of sound table. By the end of the run of the show, I had like two picnic tables full of noisemaking devices. And that was sort of a clue for me and everyone else that I'm kind of into it. And so I continued sound designing shows. University of Chicago did not have a theater program at the time. There was a pretty robust student-run theater called UT University Theater that sort of self-produced a bunch of shows, over 30 productions a year, all student-run. It had some professional sort of advisors, nothing on the sound design. The closest was the TD would teach a lighting class. And so a lot of it was very much sort of self-taught. I remember at the time I was getting into a lot of trouble cause I would quote unquote borrow the gear from the booth cause this is back in the Minidisc days. So I would like literally steal the Minidisc player so I could take it home and record cues, bring it back. They started using like safety screws and that gear that did not really help. But anyways, I continued DJing and I had no aspirations of doing sound design. I didn't even like really understand that that's a, like a real career. So I thought I would continue doing theater, but you know, like a good immigrant kid, I had plans to get a quote unquote real job. But I continued doing theater and DJing. And what would happen a lot is that I would end up DJing some event, some after party or opening night gala or something for various shows. This is in Chicago. So there was a lot of theater companies. And I started kind of developing my network that way, sort of DJing an event. And then talking to the artistic director or various people sort of infer, I'm also an aspiring sound designer. And that would sometimes lead to projects. Interestingly enough, some of the first few projects that I did were sound designs but they were very DJ based. Like I was a DJ in a show performing the sound design live and that would happen actually several times. My first equity production was like that and that continued being the dynamic for quite some time. Eventually, much to the dismay of my immigrant parents, I quit the real job that I had and started doing things full time. But the DJing continued. In fact, that was the way I was able to support this habit, so to speak. And then eventually started working regionally. And all this time, sort of the sound design world would periodically veer into composition. I didn't have a formal education in composition. So again, was figuring things out on my own. The DJing was definitely an influence on the way I approached composition. Ableton was a huge tool for me. With version one, I sort of learned like, oh, this is how you can use loops and what you can sort of build from there. And so the three things were never sort of separate. They were always kind of informing each other. Oftentimes I would get projects based on sort of the aesthetic or the needs of the show were sort of required that kind of DJ mentality which doesn't always mean for me a style of music. It more means an approach to recontextualizing content. I've certainly have built shows that had a very more apparent DJ aesthetic, like mashups and remixes and a sort of dance floor oriented flavor. But oftentimes it is not so much the style of music, but the way I would approach both the sound design and the composition was informed by sort of the thinking that I think one employs as a DJ. So I am still continuing all three of those disciplines. At one point, I thought the DJing would go away like, oh, I'm no longer a young chicken anymore anymore. And it certainly has moved away a little bit from the dance floor. You know, I wasn't doing clubs or parties as much, but it kind of went into this sort of event. I worked with a spectacle company that would throw these sort of events and parties with a lot of theatrical component to it. And so... I started DJing those, but recently I would say I've been finding myself sort of veering back to the dance floor. Just sort of, I think what's happening with dance music is really interesting right now. So I am interested in exploring that landscape a little bit more.
0: So real quick, were you going to U Chicago for school? Yeah. Okay. So what were you studying there? So when I
1: applied... And when I got in, I was a pre-med student. I mean, you, you got to understand that this is all in the context of immigrant sort of American dream. So I was pre-med and that's what I was studying for the first year. Also, that's when I started getting interested in theater, but that was sort of irrelevant to the job. Part of it is sort of the Russian mentality is like, what you study is what you do, because that's sort of kind of like the Soviet system worked is that even starting at last few years of high school, that informed your track in the university, which informed your track in postgraduate education, which informed your track and the work. So in the eyes of my parents and therefore me, I was on a, sort of the medical track. After a year, I sort of had to acknowledge that I was not ready to commit over 10 years of my life without a full acknowledgement that that's really what I wanted to do, like a true belief that I was passionate about this. And I switched to psychology, and at the time I was still very much interested in the sciences, so biology, so I was bio and psych. Then eventually, again, to sort of make it economically realistic, I added economics. In retrospect knowing what economics education a university is it, it was not a wise move but whatever. So I was Econ and Psych. And what started emerging is this sort of direction in advertising. So I graduated with a degree in psychology and a quote-unquote minor in economics. I was one credit away from getting that degree as well. Not because I didn't take the class, because I did not pass it, because my last year I organized an arts festival and focused on that. So that should have been a clue, but whatever. And so I graduated school and worked for a very large advertising company. I worked on the media side. So I worked for a company called Leo Burnett, which is a... One of the big Chicago advertising companies. Essentially, they had a sister company called Starcom Worldwide, which was the media side, which was less about creating the ad and more figuring out sort of how to get that message to the various audiences, identifying who the target is and their media conception and figuring out the media strategy for that. So I worked there for four years. But at that time is when I really started noticing that I'm spending a lot of time doing sound design and theater and few years into that process, I realized I am doing two full-time jobs and I only kind of like one of them.
0: And so four years after I graduated and was working on that company, I quit. So when you were working in advertising, were you bringing that sort of sound design mentality that you were developing to the work you were doing there? Or were you really just keeping it in two sort of separate parts of your brain? At that
1: time, it was mostly separate. I didn't have the imagination or the confidence to sort of see the overlap. Interestingly enough, after I quit, I maintained some relationships with some people who were working there on the creative side. And that's when I started sometimes consulting and sometimes even making some content for them, just small kind of side projects of remixing, and that's when I started understanding this notion of recontextualization and consuming through producing. Also, I think what happened was I read this book called The Beat Manifesto, I think, by Paul D. Miller aka uh, DJ Spooky. And then I gave it to my friend who was an account supervisor, Leo Burnett, who was also a trumpet player in the band that I was playing in. And we were both like, DJing is a philosophy, not just a way of making sound. And I think that was sort of informing some of the things that we were doing. But unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to really shine or really explore that while I was there. I definitely got sort of very quickly pegged as like, oh, you're the creative kid. And so I was given sort of creative assignments and I ended up doing a lot of work in non-traditional media, like not TV, not magazines, but sort of media strategies using like anything from billboards to mats in the urinals and nightclubs to supermarkets or whatever, sort of like figuring out a more creative way of reaching your audience. So that was probably the closest thing, but it is only towards the end of 10 years after graduating, I sort of understood like, oh, the things I'm learning when I think about design could be applicable in these sort of like non-sound oriented fields.
0: So I know you said that you sort of went to a rave when you were 16 and that opened up your world a little bit, but was there, you know, a lot of music in your home? Did you ever see theater growing up? Was that something that was on your radar at all before you made it to Chicago? Absolutely. I think part of it sort of is a testament to Soviet Russia, in a way, that art was
1: actually a pretty consistent presence in your life. So we went to see theater, we went to see concerts. At that time, TV was not what it is now or what it is here. Imagine, essentially, TV was public television, like that's the equivalent of it. And so what was even broadcast in that was not a lot of movies, but like sometimes live broadcasts of productions and things like that. And so I was very much familiar with it. And like our school would put on plays and I was active in that. And my parents were very sort of active in sort of supporting and developing that appreciation. Later, they semi-jokingly said that like that backfired and like that took me down a path of destitution. So even when we first moved to the States at that point, you know, I had this education and so I was in band. That's when I picked up bass because they didn't need a piano player. So I was like, all right, I'm going to learn a new instrument. And as a joke, I'm going to find the biggest instrument because at that time, I'm not a big guy now, but then I was really small. So I just insisted on learning the biggest instrument I could find just because I found it hilarious. So yeah, I was well aware of these things. What I did not understand that it is a job that you could be doing without a formal education in it. So that I think is what was a bit of a disconnect for me. Like I am studying economics and psychology, which to me sort of intersects at this idea of advertising and marketing. So that's what I'm gonna be doing because that's what I'm studying. Meanwhile, part of it is realizing like, oh, I'm studying this, but through practice rather than textbooks.
0: But that's so interesting, too, because I think there's an argument to be made that if you're not going to get a degree in sound design, psychology and economics is a great combination to have as someone who goes into theater design or this sort of professional world of making art and sound art and performance.
1: I, I agree. I would argue this might be different now, like 20 years later. I don't know if a psychology and economics education at University of Chicago is that helpful in these more sort of practical or kind of daily life because it's highly theoretical and highly based on sort of classic texts. Like, the reason why I got into psychology is because I loved reading Freud. It was very entertaining. Now I know how not useful what you learn in Freud is. But at the foundation of pretty much every class in undergrad was these sort of like classical texts, like Freud, Foucault... Karl Marx, Du Bois, right? So you learn sort of how to analyze the classics. It certainly teaches you to think. So to me, like, that honestly is sort of the best skill that I've developed. I think any education is useful. And psychology and economics, because it's sort of open-ended, it's not a hard science, but it's still a pseudoscience, it is helpful to be both analytical and creative in your thinking.
0: And so one thing I grabbed onto that you said, you said you started as an actor like all of us do. I just want to wanna push back on that a little bit, because I feel like that's something that I hear from a lot of people, both inside and outside the world of design and tech for theater. And you certainly hear it a lot in sound design circles, because I think there are a lot of people that started out in performance and then moved over to design. I mean, I certainly didn't do that. I'm just, I, you know, I'm sort of interested in how you think those two are intertwined in terms of your work.
1: I mean, I think the way a lot of times when people approach theater, they're not aware of all the things behind the curtain, both literally and figuratively. So I think that's actually has been changing. And we've been talking a lot about that at TCCA, actually, sort of informing the world that there's more to it than what has been historically the front face of theatrical performance, which is the stage and the people on it. But what happened for me is that felt like that's the way you get involved. But then it being UFC, table work was a huge thing. Like we had all this dramaturgy and all this text analysis. And I found myself gravitating to that kind of work. I was excited to be talking about theater, not just doing it. And so my way into it was actually acting, then doing all this dramaturgy work, then finding myself into sort of assistant directing. I've never directed there, but I definitely was a lot more involved in sort of big picture and conceptual and aesthetic conversation. And then that was a really easy way to sort of, oh, I'm developing these specific technical tools of sound and music I could be using those tools to answer some of the questions that were being raised on this sort of larger conversation. I think that's what happens a lot for a lot of people when they get started in theater thinking that it's always about performance. And then once they're led into the room, they see how many more people are sitting around the table. And that's when they start finding their place at that table. I enjoyed acting. But honestly, the moment I got to sort of practice these other, let's call them positions, right, like assistant directing or designing, I even produced a little bit. I would go back to acting periodically, but I wasn't enjoying it as much. And I think part of it is sort of understanding that I am perhaps lacking some of the skills that could really then move you to the next stage. Meanwhile, in these other positions, I seem to be making better progress.
0: So that idea ties really interestingly in with something you've said a couple times about your work as both a DJ and as a sound designer, which is that you're more interested in recontextualizing content than you are in going after a certain style in your work, which to me is a very dramaturgical idea. You know, it's interesting that when you're talking about your background in acting and then getting into doing an AD work and doing all this table work, that that feels like something that informs your sound design work a lot, because you are thinking about the context of a story more than you're thinking about, you know, what style of music will tell this well.
1: Yeah. Uh, before before we move we move much further, it just want to be clear that when we talk about my background in acting, like I did like two or three shows as an actor, but definitely it pales in comparison. Even while I was in college, I did like I sound design. Even there, I started double dipping and like multitasking shows, I think. That's where the bad habits started forming. But yes, I would absolutely agree that for me, story and world building and sort of idea examining is where the work starts for me and informs the aesthetic. It is very rare that I start from an aesthetic place where I know what it's supposed to sound I do think design in general is a discipline of problem solving. So for me, the process starts with identifying what the problems are, then hypothesizing what some of the answers are, and then identifying how some of those answers could be addressed through my work. And then that is the way in into sort of aesthetic conversations, whether it's sound or music or whatever else. So one thing I'm definitely very thankful to my education at University of Chicago was that it is very, not analytical It feels very sort of heavy handed, but it's definitely asks the question of what and the why right? So I often find myself asking that question early on in the conversations on plays before I have any clue of what the sound of the music will be. To me, the sound design is as much about sort of information that needs to be provided to kind of tell the story as it is about artistic expression. There are some interesting side effects of that where I certainly struggle identifying what is my aesthetic, There are people who assure me that my aesthetic is very clear. And we've certainly discussed this in conversations. I remember in the salons with Michael Roth, where we spent so much time working in the world building and emulating or referencing genres and referencing other existing work, which is without a doubt the way I approach things. Even if it's music and if it's composition, it always starts with a playlist of reference material that I react to based on the dramaturgic conversation. It's like I make a mixtape of like, this is the palette, this is the style that I'm sort of beginning to hear. So you spend a lot of time referencing and sometimes even emulating other work and you get pretty good at it. But then unless you make a commitment to practicing your own work that is not in response to something else, it becomes harder and harder to answer. Is like, well, what do you sound like? I can easily answer the question, the world of display sounds like this, but I certainly can't have that confidence when what does my room, when there's nothing else going on there and just me and my thoughts, what does that sound like? But I think you are absolutely right that the The dramaturgy and context and recontextualization is often the initial step for me before we get into anything else.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I guess one of the questions I have is how important do you feel it is for yourself as a sound designer and a sound artist, but also in general for other people that are thinking about this? How important do you feel it is that you have something that you personally can define for yourself as an aesthetic? Or do you feel it's more important for you to be able to understand how you're going to respond to a set of research? I'm interested in this idea of personal aesthetic because I think there's certainly an argument to be made that for a theater designer, maybe that's not the best thing, right, to be stuck in an aesthetic. Because I think we all certainly have heard work from people that feels like every show is a little bit of the same. So the question of personal aesthetic is a big one
1: but also an evolving one. One way to look at it is that not having a personal aesthetic or having some neutrality is a very useful skill to be a designer, like capital D designer, right? Like being able to have a semi-objective, let's acknowledge that nothing is completely objective, but a semi- objective perspective on a story and being able to let the story kind of drive the conversation it does make it easier and sometimes even like safer to do the work and collaborate with people and multitask and all those things. But I do feel that at least I find that as you get older and you know, you're know sitting in yet another tech, you sometimes finding yourself asking the question, what's next or why am I doing this? And these sort of bigger sort of existential questions of identity right? Like, who am I? And I often use this sort of notion of capital letter identity. Like, I don't struggle calling myself a designer. I am a designer. I approach things from a design oriented place. I do, however, hesitate using the word artist, because to me, it gets into a place of generative work rather than reactive work, and also gets into a place of self-expression, And whether it's some deeper sort of psychological issue or lack of practice, I don't know what it is that I have to say. Part of it, I think, is cultural, right? Like there's this sort of notion that not everybody should have something to say. And sometimes your job is to sort of amplify the voices of others. I think it's actually a very relevant point in the current sort of larger conversation. But when you think about like, I've been doing this for a couple of decades and maybe I'm going to do this for a couple more, what effect am I leaving or what am I leaving behind? And what is it that I can put my name on? And that sort of self-questioning kind of ebbs and flows. I do acknowledge I like being helpful and I like helping people do their work and like recognize their vision. But when left with my own thoughts, I wonder what is my vision and how important that is. And I don't have an answer to that. But I certainly find myself asking those questions more now than I did 15 or 10 years ago.
0: So I I think that struggle that you were talking about, not necessarily between being a designer and an artist, but whether you feel like an artist alongside being a designer is a really common one. I've certainly thought about that a lot. And I know from other people that I've talked to that they think about that a lot. And it's interesting because when we're working in theater, we're very clearly working in service to a show and to a story and in many cases to the vision of a director and the rest of our team. But I think if you take the work that we do and were to isolate it from the pieces that we build it for, I think in many cases it does stand up as art, which again is, I think, something that we all struggle with. Like, does this make sense out of that context? I think there's a couple different questions here, but I'd say one is when you have those moments of doubt, like you talked about, you know, sitting at the tech table and wondering, is the thing I'm doing art? Is it expanding my idea of my work in the world or whatever it is? How do you wrangle with those issues? What are you doing to help you get out to get to the other side of that?
1: So... Sort of to address that specific experience of sitting at the table and sort of questioning the what's next, let's sort of acknowledge that sometimes it just comes from sort of the difficulty of the work and that it feels like even if there's momentum in your career and with every show is growing bigger and bigger, it seems to not be getting easier. And so I think sometimes it's just a fatigue thing rather than sort of a large existential thing. You just trying to understand, like, what does success feel like? And I think that's when it can veer into success for me or for who, like, who am I? And that's when you go down the rabbit hole of existentialism. So to answer the question of what do I do to get out of that rabbit hole? I mean, I think sometimes it's helpful to stay in that hole, at least for a while. But the work demands your attention. So that's where you can sort of stay there for too long, because you actually have to sort of maintain focus. But what I've often found, the conversation to have with myself, is that I legitimately know that I like championing other people. I've been very fortunate in my life to meet some really incredible people who should be heard. Like, I have no doubt in my mind that these artists need to be heard and exposed and other people need to be exposed to them. And suddenly it becomes a sort of like personal mission to sort of be one of the many tools that these people can have to continue their work. So when it gets into this question of sort of legacy or what am I leaving behind, that sometimes is the answer. If at the end of my day, I can say, I helped this person who I believe in move the needle somehow, or get a step closer to their goal, that is a satisfying feeling, and I can enjoy my night off. It ultimately feels a little altruistic, which is, I think, a good thing. The sort of the other side of that coin is where you begin to question whether or not I'm choosing to champion other people because it's actually safer and less vulnerable to do that rather than to try to sort of expose yourself and champion yourself. And I don't have an answer to that. But most of the time, I have not had the time to examine that, which is what makes right now such a unique time, because we're all sort of left with ourselves and our demons to sort of ask some of those questions. It takes more than a couple months in quarantine to have it all resolved, but it, it's been helping for sure.
0: Yeah. And, and it should be noted that we're speaking in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic,
1: Oh yes, so when people listen to this like 30 years from now, they have context. <laughs>
0: Um, But so speaking of that, we're in the middle of this pandemic right now, and it is a lot harder to collaborate. And I'm interested in how you've been dealing with that. Have you been going out and trying to find people to collaborate so you can continue to be inspired to work? Have you been trying to think about what interests you and doing some of that? What's been your response? Have you felt the need to create or do you just feel like you're waiting for the collaboration and the people to come back?
1: So the last several months have definitely been in various waves. I feel like it was pretty fair to say that the first month was a bit in mourning. And Then I do remember I felt the need to sort of start reaching out to people and be like, all right, let's start making stuff. And that was also coupled with me observing what people were trying to do. And it felt misdirected. There was a period where I was reaching out to every director that I respected. Those conversations, not many of them led places. Some of them have. But one thing at that time was sort of understanding that, especially for larger institutions that perhaps have resources to do these sort of explorations, they have a responsibility to the organization and to their audiences to actually have a better sense of what the next year or two are going to look like. In the meantime, I also have been examining what is interesting to me. I've always been interested in sort of like audio storytelling. I love audiobooks. The podcast world has been interesting to me as well. And I have been doing that work even before the pandemic. And so that work has sort of continued. Next week, I'm doing long recording sessions remotely for, it's an Audible Originals project. The company that I've been making audio plays with, we are soon going to be diving into a development process of a mini series essentially. Also, I started thinking about having watched a couple Zoom or video-based work. The more sort of interactive, let's call it art, that requires you to be more engaged with it rather than a passive observer. I've been really interested in the sort of walking, meditation, audio content that is designed specifically for you to go out of the house and perhaps follow a specific routes. I see a lot of opportunities right now, both for my own sort of growth, but also for us as theater makers to be expanding the definition and also democratizing access to some of this stuff. And I am trying to be both respectful of people's sort of hesitations, but also hopefully inspire or challenge them to do things. Meanwhile, acknowledging that sometimes it's really easier to get lazy right now, right? It's comfortable. I'm sleeping more than I ever have. And now I have a new dog and like, I'd much rather just go for walks and go to the beach. And that's actually healthy. It's healthy to wanna do those things and not just be working 60 hours a week. So part of this whole exercise is redistributing and figuring out what the new balance is.
0: So one thing I want to talk about is you split your time between New York City and Chicago. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about how that lifestyle started and what you feel are the advantages and disadvantages of splitting your time between two cities in that way. So this is one of my
1: favorite things to talk about. So I'm glad I get to chat about New York and Chicago. As a theater practitioner, I grew up on the Chicago uh, scene, which is very robust and very fun and gritty and lots of theaters. Too many theaters, if you ask me, but I spent 15 years cutting my teeth and working my way through the various sort of strata and sizes of theaters. And then in 2014, I felt the need to get out, partially just sort of just slightly different change of pace and, you know, wanting to kind of get my ass kicked a little bit. And then there was also like a personal life development angle that sort of made it seem like I need to get out to the East Coast. And I also felt confident that I can always have work in Chicago and that I have established enough of a network and reputation that I can continue doing work. So what I've done at the time is sort of consolidated my footprint in Chicago to essentially a bedroom and moved out to New York and sort of started trying to figure out my way. It was an interesting time to be doing that. A few things sort of happened right at that moment is one, that the personal relationship that sort of took me out there kind of imploded. As it always happens, it seems to everyone I talk to who's ever made a move. But also, I sort of found myself realizing, you know what, if I was 10 years younger, this would be perfect. Like I spent so little time at home, it felt weird to be paying rent because I was out most of the time. But in like being in like mid thirties, I was actually beginning to enjoy being home and New York felt like an interesting place. It felt odd to be doing that because New York is constantly reminding you that you are investing time into it and that all the time that you're spending there, you need to be investing into like your career, your social life, whatever else. And that involves sort of being out there. So it was just an interesting sort of tension there, but that's on a personal level. But nonetheless, that work began to grow. I started making connections, working on shows, and I certainly started getting projects that were perhaps originating someplace else, but they had sort of a stop already planned in New York. And because I could guarantee myself as a local, I was able to get those projects. And that was an interesting sort of revelation for me. And then in 2016, it was just sort of an interesting combination of life and art informing me of of one thing in that year alone i got to work on culminating three huge projects that were all like long processes in development like multi-year projects that i got to be there either from the very beginning or in the middle of the process but i still got to spend several years developing them and then i got to see them through and have it like be really born and all of that happened in chicago And also at the same time, I met Vera, who is now my fiance, who's also Chicago based. And so life pressures aside, what I realized, like, I actually really like developing work. I like to get deep and vertical with it and be in the room and see it in the long game. And I realized that that rarely happens in New York City. Just the economics of doing theater in New York do not allow that. And what often happens is that this work gets developed elsewhere, and then eventually it can make its way to New York, where at that point, it does not have the luxury to really grow. I mean, there's still a lot of growth, but it's really fast and it has to get to the audience much quicker. So what I understood that I have this sort of unique position where I could be developing this work in Chicago or regionally whatever, and then as it makes its way to New York, I can also be on the receiving end of it. I've developed enough of connections there where by no means I'm like unknown quantity in New York, I think, but people trust me enough to like, oh, you're a local, you worked in these places and whatever else. And also at the same time, I started getting a few DJ gigs in New York. I was DJing for the New York Roadrunners, which is like the organization that organizes all the races in New York City. So suddenly I found myself like doing short stints in New York and found myself really doing longer stretches in Chicago or elsewhere. And what happened is sort of my balance reversed itself. While I was considering myself a New York resident with a satellite in Chicago, it flipped And Chicago became sort of my residence where I get to stretch out. And then me and my partner, like we have bought property and like this is home. And New York became the sort of satellite situation where it's essentially a commute. And it has worked pretty well for several years. The ease of it and also this vision that I've seen, like develop a project and have it arrive in New York has definitely paid off. I've seen that with many projects at this point with pretty good success. And so that has worked pretty well. There's a question for me right now, sort of sharing, like, how does that going to work from now on? I wonder whether New York is going to be the last to sort of really kind of reopen or because New York does have a unique commitment to the industry to figure out ways of making it happen, which is a perfect sort of segue to what I see is the kind of the main differences of New York and pretty much every place else, but like. New York and Chicago. New York is very much an industry city. It has built like this really sophisticated ecosystem of relationships and rentals and jobs and tracks and everything like that. So it's a very impressive machine, but as a result, it's very product oriented. A place like Chicago, partially because it's actually been sometimes to a fault, not cost prohibitive enough to make theater. It never became an industry and is very much a process-oriented place, often informed by the major institutions that are constantly popping out new, young talent. And so it is the city of the ensemble, it is all these new theater companies. Every year, there's a brand new theater company formed dedicated to new work. And so there's just a lot of process. But what I've often found is that as a city... All these theater companies, they don't think about the life of a product once they got to opening night. And so I have found that to be challenging when I was there, but now I kind of get to have the best of both worlds. I get to experience the camaraderie and the community and growing something from an idea to a fully realized sort of concept. But then I also get to enjoy and be part of A really
0: well oiled machine that is the New York theater scene. So, when you first moved to New York, you were already an established designer in Chicago. Coming here, were you immediately doing more design focused work or were you swinging a wrench while you made contacts? How much did you feel like you were sort of staying at the same level in terms of the work you were doing in Chicago when you came to New York or was there an adjustment and you had to build a network and a career back up again?
1: So when I moved,
0: I definitely didn't
1: have a network and contacts. So that definitely had something that needed to be established. What was interesting is that I felt that I wasn't really qualified to go the crew route, sort of like learn my way, get introduced to theaters there, just because, as I was saying, there's a whole sort of system of people doing work, like loading in shows, the way they approach paperwork and cabling and everything like that. It it is still very robust. And I never learned that. Actually, that is my weakest part of my career, is that I never learned sort of standards and systems. But I was lucky enough to start landing some shows that were pretty much being able to continue my work that I was doing in Chicago and regionally and continuing the design work and continuing that career that I was growing in Chicago. So the way I was meeting people was either through a director who I sort of work with regionally and then they would sort of work in New York or through the couple institutions that, I don't know if it was like a chance, but essentially just I had an opportunity to do a project that they've never worked with me before, but they would let me do a project. And I was able to impress upon them that I do know what I'm doing, which is tough. I would say New York, it's hard. It's a much more sort of dense population. And that led to other work. So I'm lucky that I didn't feel that I had to sort of retrace my steps and build myself up. I was able to sort of jump into it, but a lot of it had to do with sort of finding the right connections. And that was the biggest piece of it, was actually learning the value of a good associate. I definitely learned that very quickly, and I was lucky that I learned that quickly because That was my way to ensure that I didn't screw something up and was meeting the standards that were sort of set in those theaters by bringing in associates who would save me uh, from making a fool of myself. So if I'm talking to a young graduate, for example, trying to figure out between Chicago and New York, My first question to them would actually be, what are you interested in specifically and what are your goals five years from now? New York, because of that machineness that I'm talking about, does create, in my opinion, a lot of entry points for young people. They can work crew, they can be assistant, they can board up, they can do a lot of these things. But it feels like a lot of people sort of get into that world and never really get out of it. If they were wanting to do design, they never get into design. While Chicago, I was designing when I was 21. I didn't know what I was doing, I'm sure it was horrible, but there was plenty of points for me to enter and start doing those things. And more importantly, just the economics of living in New York versus living in Chicago made it much easier to hustle creatively and not make any money, but still being able to have a part-time job. Or in my case, it was when I first I had the, like a full-time job, but then when I started DJing, like that was enough for me to sort of support me growing my creative career. But if I didn't have that option, I would not have opportunities to do stage crew or load in shows or do production audio or be an, an assistant. Like those avenues did not exist and still very much do not exist in Chicago. And so if you're interested in system design and like that's where you think you can at least sort of provide yourself as a resource, New York is definitely the way. There's so many sort of four walls scenarios where they need people who know what they're doing. But if you're interested and can figure out a way to support yourself while you're working on sort of the artistic or creative side of things, if you want to start working with young directors or develop your own work, Chicago feels like a great opportunity for that. And it is not as grinding, I feel like. New York can be really tough on a lot of people. I've definitely met a lot of people in New York who got very burned by how tough it can be in New York. And there's times where I tell them it doesn't have to be that sort of painful. And then I am one of the people who's constantly advocating that the freedom to move between the two cities can happen. And I certainly advocate and have been able to convince a few people who are New York based to just try to find some work in Chicago. Now, Chicago needs to get better about getting people from out of town. And I think there's a lot of benefit. Now, a lot of it actually is on the diversity side of it is that most people gravitate to New York. And so the New York Pool is just a lot more diverse on all sorts of levels, but I can convince like early career to like five years doing this, come to Chicago, you will find yourself not having to sit through four weeks of tech and do really good work and actually make a living. It requires being a little bit creative and I am more than prepared to continue trying to facilitate this because I only think both cities can actually benefit from that freedom of movement between them and actually sort of cross-pollinating that way.
0: So what are some of your hobbies outside of theater?
1: It was pointed out to me a while ago that I am a theater maker whose hobby was theater. And it's true, like on my free time, I would go see more theater or I would see more music or whatever. Essentially, it was on a constant sort of cycle of these things. And that has a very potentially draining effect on you. And I certainly was reflecting that I found myself kind of running on empty. Like I felt like I was sort of just going through the motions And I was so envious of my friends who were not in the arts like full-time. And they had like full-time jobs and families and kids. And they would come in with such beautiful and really interesting, unique things that part of me was like, that's my job. I'm supposed to be the creative one here. And it was pointed out to me that like, you got to refill the bowl somehow. And so it took me a while to kind of arrive at the idea of needing hobbies and more importantly, needing things that you're not necessarily good at, but just being able to do those things. And so for the last sort of five years, I've been trying to cultivate those things. And I suspect you'll be asking the question what I'm doing right now on my list of things are surfing. And then I got into like motorcycles and then like I got a one wheel. It all became sort of like riding things essentially. And I mean, surfing was just simply like I needed an activity that would make me travel and also an activity that I'm really bad at and I'm a horrible surfer. A lot of it is just practice, right? You know, I'm not near ocean that often. However, that's definitely one of the joys of working at La Jolla Playhouse is that you're like seven minutes away from a pretty good beach. And so I would go surfing before tech. And there was this one surf shop. They already know me. Like I'll show up and I'll rent the board for like an hour, And honestly, nothing prepares you better for tech than getting your ass kicked by the ocean for an hour and a half. I highly recommend it. And also I've got to sort of travel because of it. Like I would sort of make decisions on where I go based on some of the surfing that I could get done there. Again, I don't own a board. I don't own anything. I sort of just like, I'll rent when I'm there. And then the second is that I decided to like get a motorcycle. So I got like a vintage motorcycle and soon after I discovered the Gentleman's Motorcycle, what is it? The Gentleman's Ride or gentleman Motorcycle Ride? Anyways, it's an annual event that happens all around the world where there are rides happening across different cities. It's all about vintage motorcycles. And the instruction is that you don your finest threads whether it's like a suit, there's also like an English sort of like hunting gears. There's another sort of like look that a lot of people go for and they ride these motorcycles and it's, you know, a ride just like you see like Harley Davidson rides. It's that, but it's just a bunch of people looking really, really fine. And I went to one of those and I had a great time partially because I got to sort of hang out with people afterwards and talk. It's not exclusively men, but it's majority men. But it was one of the few times it was like, oh, I'm with a bunch of men and I don't feel like a douchebag. There was masculinity that it wasn't a macho and sort of like aggressive, but actually a bunch of people geeking out about like someone antiquated and certainly not the simplest ways of doing things, but deriving joy from fixing their 50-year-old machines and getting to look stylish while doing that. And so those have been my two hobbies. I will say I haven't gotten to really dive into them recently. My motorcycle right now is not functional. I need to sort of fix it. Seems like a perfect time to do it. But I also managed to uh, decide to get a dog. And so that has been taking up a little bit of time. But yeah, I highly recommend having a hobby that does not at all pertain to what you do for a living. The other thing that I found as I was analyzing, like, what do I do outside of work, is that they're all activities that require full focus, the one thing about motorcycle riding is that you cannot be doing other things while you're doing it. Like, while you're driving in the car, and I love driving, so I drive all the time. Like, I have designed entire shows. I'm not saying, like, literally on a computer, but, like, I've conceived of entire sort of designs while driving on long drives. With a motorcycle, you actually kind of can't do it. You can't even be listening to music. You shouldn't be, because it requires 100% full-on attention, because it's a little dangerous. So, being able to unplug and for like even 30 minutes just like focus on the one thing and partially that thing is your survival is actually a healthy exercise once in a while so it's another thing that i recommend
0: yeah i was gonna say the motorcycling and the surfing are both definitely things that require your full attention but you know i also love this idea that you should find something you can be bad at Mm -hmm. because i do feel like as theater makers we're so failure averse Right. The way that we build everything is like make it repeatable, make it foolproof. You know, not that we don't take risks in the theater, but it's about repeating an action over and over again in a way that won't fail. So to find a hobby where the starting point is, I'm not going to be able to do this. And the end point is, well, maybe I'll never be good at this, but it's fun. Is so like outside of the way that I feel like we tend to think about the things that we do. Yeah. You
1: can't see me, but I'm vigorously nodding my head right now. So I absolutely agree.
0: Great. So What are you listening to?
1: So these days, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, although that is also turning into not just enjoyment, but also because I'm getting more into that ecosystem, I'm beginning to pay attention to some things. So some podcasts, I'm re-listening to 1619 right now, the 1619 Project, and always listen to like Reply All. I finished the West Wing Weekly because I'm just a huge West Wing nerd. So I decided to um, follow that along and have been enjoying what Trump can teach us about constitutional law. That's a pretty fun one. And then once in a while, I'll sort of just let the algorithm make a recommendation. Most of the time, I'm not happy with it, but uh, once in a while, I'll hear something. Music-wise, I still listen to plenty of music, and there's things that are not necessarily like research, like there's stuff that I know backwards and forwards, but there's just a heavy rotation for me whenever I decide to like listen to something while, while I'm doing something else.
0: What are some of those albums? I think
1: in the heaviest rotation for me is, I guess, Bonobo. There's a label that I like, Ninja Tune. Everything that's sort of put out is pretty interesting to me. The cinematic orchestra in Portishead definitely played a huge influence on me. And so I used to listen to them a whole lot. I personally think the work that James Blake is doing is pretty impressive. So I've been very much enjoying his work. And then also, I think if I'm getting his name right, Chris Bowers. He's a composer. He's done some film work. He scored Dear White People, the series, not the movie. Both his scoring work, but also his own work is really interesting. And sort of like guilty pleasure, man, like Lizzo, I can listen to Lizzo anytime. And it's also like the moment I sort of learned of her work, my go-to when I DJ. It's a guaranteed like floor filler. So I'm forever grateful.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say this is an adamantly pro Lizzo podcast. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. What are some of your favorite
1: tools? So... The question of what are my favorite tools brings up the point that I'm actually not very tool-oriented because I don't know if I've mastered any of them. I've mentioned Ableton a couple times. Ableton has been my sort of DAW and tool of choice for quite some time. So, you know, having co-taught Ableton with you, I will endorse that as a tool. But outside of that, there are certain virtual instruments that I've really started to enjoy. Spitfire Audio and Sonic Couture are often my go-tos. And actually, this sort of speaks a little bit to something that you brought up the amount of work that you have to do before you can start enjoying what you're making. And something I've appreciated about both of those is how immediately playable all their stuff is. And so, you know, it is a lot of customization that you can do, but you can like load a patch and it immediately sort of inspires you to be making some stuff. I certainly find myself relying on those, not just relying on them, but also trusting them. So whenever they're creating new tools, I just immediately trust that it will be a useful thing. And then another tool, and this is actually a little bit more open ended, is collaboration and chance are kind of important tools. So, oftentimes when I've created content, both for shows, and actually it's definitely something I've used for film a couple of times, is bringing musicians to collaborate with me. But it's rare that it's like I give them sheet music and say, here, play this. Oftentimes it's like, here's a sketch, here's sort of like a foundation, here's an inspiration. And now we're going to play for four hours and I track all of that and that, it's way too much. And then I get to sort of cut and paste things. And that often gives me a lot to work with, but also creates content that I myself would just never have the ability to generate on my own. And this actually goes back to your earlier questions about like, how does DJing inform my process? To me, DJing, it's about being a conduit, right? And it's both an act of consumption and production at the same time. In a way, I am consuming uh, an existing piece of music. More importantly, I'm in a way consuming the energy that is coming at me from a dance floor or whatever else. But at the same time, I am producing and performing. But all it is is just sort of like channeling through me and then putting it back out, perhaps in reoriented or refocused way. But it is not mine. It is the world's, not to be very esoteric about it. And I certainly have found that I thrive in situations when I'm able to recreate that modality in sort of composition or, or just music creation. So I use that as a tool I miss that. I I haven't had a chance to do that as much partially because so much we're expected to sort of generate right then and there and in tech and all of that. So you are sort of left with yourself and with sort of the computer, there's not a chance to sort of get the chaos of the world kind of inspire you. But perhaps, again, now's the time to sort of reestablish those ideas.
0: Yeah. And so where can people go find your work if they want to find out more about you and, and see what you're up to? Oh,
1: God. So, yeah, this is you bringing up a thing that I'm not very proud of, which is I'm really bad at actually sort of promoting. And I mean, I have a website. It has some stuff on there. It feels a little outdated. I have two SoundClouds, one that's my name, Mikhail Fixel. The other one is the the DJ moniker, DJ White Russian. It's not one moniker I'm that proud of these days, but it's sort of stuck around And and I just can't think of anything better. So the DJ one is focused a little bit more on mixes, which also feel a little bit outdated because I haven't been uploading new stuff. And at one point, there was a project that I worked with a bunch of people called Seeking Wonderland, which was this sort of like jazz, funk, DJ world kind of project that 10 years ago where we recorded a bunch of tracks. Most of them were like live. And then we made it into a quote-unquote album, and now there's a website that's that album. And periodically I'll get a notification like, five people check this out <laughs> recently. So that exists out there. But also the work that I'm pretty proud of the last several years, I've been working with a company called Make Believe Association. And it's a theater company dedicated to creating audio dramas. And so I've been producing stuff for them. And we had a full season of original dramas last year and currently developing a new thing. Plus, we've generated a bunch of podcasts during the early weeks of the pandemic that you can find on
0: makebelieve.fm or anywhere where podcasts are sold, so to speak. So what's some advice that you would give to someone who's just starting out in the industry?
1: My advice to someone starting in the industry, I think it's actually fairly simple. It's like, just don't be an asshole. I found that the most important thing is just sort of being like a good team member and a supportive thing. Like this job is actually very difficult. And I don't mean just our jobs, just in general, making art in this country, in this time. And the best we can do is sort of just be supportive of each other and sort of being engaged. And it is impressive how often the relationships, how far they can carry you. So the relationships that I formed 15 years ago are now having a huge payoff right now for me. And so it is about being just pleasant to work with. You might sometimes fail at doing the technical side of it. We talked about failure, adversity, and all of that. Like sometimes you just don't succeed on the technical. You don't have the skills or whatever, but As long as you don't fail at being a decent person and being pleasant to be in the room with, that is actually the number one thing. So that is my biggest advice. You never know everything. And so just be humble and willing and supportive.
0: And on that note, Misha, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm looking forward to hearing all the magic that you do with this and everything else. This podcast is a production of the TSDCA. This episode was produced by me, Josh Samuels. It was edited, mixed, and scored by Kyle Jensen, with additional support from Brad Barrage, Brandon Reed, and Kyle W. Jensen. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in finding out more about the TSDCA, our home on the web, is t s d c a